0: chapter five part two of death in venice by thomas Mann, translated by kenneth burke this librivox recording is in the public domain after the song was ended he began collecting money he started with the russians who were evidently willing to spend and then came up the stairs up here he showed himself just as humble as he had been bold during the performance cringing and bowing he stole about among the tables and a smile of obsequious cunning exposed his strong teeth while the two wrinkles still stood ominously between his red eyebrows this singular character collecting money to live on they eyed him with a curiosity and a kind of repugnance they tossed coins into his felt hat with the tips of their fingers and were careful not to touch him the elimination of the physical distance between the comedian and the audience, no matter how great the enjoyment may have been, always causes a certain uneasiness. He felt it, and tried to excuse it by groveling. He came up to Aschenbach, and along with him the smell, which no one else seemed concerned about. "'Listen,' the recluse said in an undertone, almost mechanically. "'They are disinfecting Venice. Why?' The jester answered hoarsely, On account of the police, that is a precaution, sir, with such heat, and the Sirocco. The Sirocco is oppressive. It is not good for the health. He spoke as though astonished that anyone could ask such things, and demonstrated with his open hand how oppressive the Sirocco was. Then there is no plague in Venice? Aschenbach asked quietly between his teeth. The clown's muscular features fell into a grimace of comical embarrassment. A plague? What kind of plague? Perhaps our police are a plague? You like to joke. A plague of all things. A precautionary measure, you understand. A police regulation against the effects of the oppressive weather. He gesticulated. Very well, Aschenbach said several times curtly and quietly and he quickly dropped an unduly large coin into the hat. Then, with his eyes, he signalled the man to leave. He obeyed, smirking and bowing. But he had not reached the stairs before two hotel employees threw themselves upon him, and with their faces close to his, began a whispered cross-examination. He shrugged his shoulders. He gave assurances. He swore that he had kept quiet. That was evident he was released and he returned to the garden then after a short conference with his companions he stepped out once more for a final song of thanks and leave-taking it was a rousing song which the recluse never recalled having heard before a big number in incomprehensible dialect with a laugh refrain in which the troop joined regularly at the tops of their voices at this point Both the words and the accompaniment of the instruments stopped, with nothing left but a laugh, which was somehow arranged rhythmically, although very naturally done, and the soloist especially showed great talent in giving it a most deceptive vitality. At the renewal of his professional distance from the audience, he had recovered all his boldness again, and the artificial laugh that he directed up towards the terrace was derisive even before the end of the articulate portion of the strophe he seemed to struggle against an irresistible tickling he gulped his voice trembled he pressed his hand over his mouth he contorted his shoulders and at the proper moment the ungovernable laugh broke out of him burst into such real cackles that it was infectious and communicated itself to the audience so that on the terrace also an unfounded hilarity living off itself alone started up but this seemed to double the singer's exuberance he bent his knees he slapped his thighs he nearly split himself he no longer laughed he shrieked he pointed up with his finger as though nothing were more comic than the laughing guests there and finally everyone in the garden and on the veranda was laughing, even to the waiters, bellboys, and house-servants in the doorways. Aschenbach was no longer resting in his chair. He sat upright, as if attempting to defend himself or to escape. But the laughter, the whiffs of the hospital smell, and the boy's nearness combined to put him into a trance that held his mind and his senses hopelessly captive. In the general movement and distraction, he ventured to glance across at Tadzio, and as he did so, he dared observe that the boy, in reply to his glance, was equally serious, much as though he had modelled his conduct and expression after those of one man, and the prevalent mood had no effect on him, since this one man was not part of it this portentous childish obedience had something so disarming and overpowering about it that the grey-haired man could hardly restrain himself from burying his face in his hands it had also seemed to him that tadzio's occasional stretching and quick breathing indicated a complaint a congestion of the lungs he is sickly he will probably not grow old he thought repeatedly with that positiveness which is often a peculiar relief to desire and passion. And along with pure solitude, he had a feeling of rakish gratification. Meanwhile, the Venetians had ended and were leaving. Applause accompanied them, and their leader did not miss the opportunity to cover his retreat with further jests. His bows, the kisses he blew, were laughed at, and so he doubled them. When his companions were already gone, he acted as though he had hurt himself by backing into a lamp-post, and he crept through the gate, seemingly crippled with pain. Then he suddenly threw off the mask of comic hard luck, stood upright, hurried away jauntily, stuck out his tongue insolently at the guests on the terrace, and slipped into the darkness. The company was breaking up. Tadzio had been missing from the balustrade for some time but to the displeasure of the waiters the lonely man sat for a long while over the remains of his pomegranate drink. Night advanced, time was crumbling. In the house of his parents many years back there had been an hourglass. of a sudden he saw the fragile and expressive instrument again, as though it were standing in front of him. Fine and noiseless, the rust-red sand was running through the glass neck, and since it was getting low in the upper half A speedy little vortex had been formed there. As early as the following day, in the afternoon, he had made new progress in his obstinate baiting of the people he met, and this time he had all possible success. He walked from the Piazza of St. Mark's into the English Travelling Bureau located there, and after changing some money at the cash-desk, he put on the expression of a distrustful foreigner and launched his fatal question at the attendant clerk he was a britisher he wore a woollen suit and was still young with close-set eyes and had that characteristic stolid reliability which is so peculiar and strikingly appealing in the tricky nimble-witted south he began no reason for alarm sir a regulation without any serious significance such measures are often taken to anticipate the unhealthy effects of the heat and the sirocco but as he raised his blue eyes he met the stare of the foreigner a tired and somewhat unhappy stare focused on his lips with a touch of scorn then the englishman blushed at least he continued in an emotional undertone that is the official explanation which people are content to accept i will admit there is something more behind it and then in his frank and leisurely manner he told the truth for several years now indian cholera had shown a heightened tendency to spread and migrate hatched in the warm swamps of the ganges delta Rising with the noxious breath of that luxuriant, unfit primitive world, and island wilderness, which is shunned by humans, and where the tiger crouches in the bamboo thickets, the plague had raged continuously, and with unusual strength in Hindustan, had reached eastwards to China, westwards to Afghanistan and Persia, and following the chief caravan routes, had carried its terrors to Astrachin, and even to Moscow but while europe was trembling lest the spectre continue its advance from there across the country it had been transported over the sea by syrian merchantmen and had turned up almost simultaneously in several mediterranean ports had raised its head in toulon and malaga had shown its mask several times in palermo and naples and seemed permanently entrenched through calabria and apulia the north of the peninsula had been spared yet in the middle of this may in venice the frightful vibrions were found on one and the same day in the blackish wasted bodies of a cabin boy and a woman who sold green groceries the cases were kept secret but within a week there were ten twenty thirty more and in various sections a man from the austrian provinces who had made a pleasure trip to venice for a few days returned to his home town and died with unmistakable symptoms and that is how the first reports of the pestilence in the lagoon city got into the german newspapers the venetian authorities answered that the city's health conditions had never been better and took the most necessary preventive measures but probably the food supply had been infected denied and glossed over death was eating its way along the narrow streets and its dissemination was especially favored by the premature summer heat which made the water of the canals lukewarm yes it seemed as though the plague had got renewed strength as though the tenacity and fruitfulness of its stimuli had doubled cases of recovery were rare out of a hundred attacks eighty were fatal and in the most horrible manner for the plague moved with utter savagery and often showed that most dangerous form which is called the drying water from the blood vessels collected in pockets and the blood was unable to carry this off within a few hours the victim was parched his blood became as thick as glue and he stifled amid cramps and hoarse groans lucky for him if as sometimes happened the attack took the form of a light discomfiture followed by a profound coma from which he seldom or never awakened. At the beginning of June, the pest-house of the Ospedale Civico had quietly filled. There was not much room left in the two orphan asylums, and a frightfully active commerce was kept up between the wharf of the Fondamenta Nuove and Saint-Michel, the burial island. But there was the fear of a general drop in prosperity the recently opened art exhibit in the public gardens was to be considered along with the heavy losses which in case of panic or unfavorable rumors would threaten business the hotels the entire elaborate system for exploiting foreigners and as these considerations evidently carried more weight than love of truth or respect for international agreements the city authorities upheld obstinately their policy of silence and denial the chief health officer had resigned from his post in indignation and been promptly replaced by a more tractable personality the people knew this and the corruption of their superiors together with the predominating insecurity the exceptional condition into which the prevalence of death had plunged the city induced a certain demoralization of the lower classes encouraging shady and antisocial impulses which manifested themselves in license, profligacy, and a rising crime-wave. Contrary to custom, many drunkards were seen in the evenings. It was said that at night, nasty mobs made the streets unsafe. Burglaries and even murders became frequent, for it had already been proved on two occasions that persons who had presumably fallen victim to the plague had in reality been dispatched by poison by their own relatives and professional debauchery assumed abnormal and obtrusive proportions such as had never been known here before and to an extent which is usually found only in southern parts of the country and in the orient the englishman pronounced the final verdict on these facts you would do well he concluded to leave to-day rather than to-morrow it cannot be much more than a couple of days before a quarantine zone is declared "'Thank you,' Aschenbach said, and left the office. The square lay sunless and stifling. Unsuspecting foreigners sat in front of the cafés, or stood among the pigeons in front of the church, and watched the swarms of birds flapping their wings, crowding one another, and pecking at grains of corn offered them in open palms. The recluse was feverishly excited, triumphant in his possession of the truth but it had left him with a bad taste in his mouth and a weird horror in his heart as he walked up and down the flagstones of the gorgeous court he was weighing an action which would meet the situation and would absolve him this evening after dinner he could approach the woman with the pearls and make her a speech he had figured it out word for word permit a foreigner madam to give you some useful advice a warning which is being withheld from you through self-interest. Leave immediately with Tazio and your daughters. Venice is full of the plague. Then he could lay a farewell hand on the head of this tool of a mocking divinity, turn away, and flee this morass. But he felt at the same time that he was very far from seriously desiring such a move. He would retract it, would disengage himself from it but when we are distracted, we loathe most the thought of retracing our steps. He recalled a white building, ornamented with inscriptions, which glistened in the evening, and in whose transparent mysticism his mind's eye had lost itself, and then that strange wanderer's form, which had awakened in the ageing man the roving hankerings of youth after the foreign and the remote. And the thought of return, the thought of prudence and soberness, effort, mastery, disgusted him to such an extent that his face was distorted with an expression of physical nausea. "'It must be kept silent,' he whispered heavily. "'I will keep silent.' The consciousness of his share in the facts and the guilt intoxicated him, much as a little wine intoxicates a tired brain." The picture of the diseased and neglected city, hovering desolately before him, aroused vague hopes beyond the bounds of reason, but with an egregious sweetness. What was the scant happiness he had dreamed of a moment ago, compared with these expectations? What were art and virtue worth to him, over against the advantages of chaos? He kept silent, and remained in Venice this same night he had a frightful dream if one can designate as a dream a bodily and mental experience which occurred to him in the deepest sleep completely independent of him and with a physical realness although he never saw himself present or moving about among the incidents but their stage rather was his soul itself and they broke in from without TRAMPLING DOWN HIS RESISTANCE, A PROFOUND AND SPIRITUAL RESISTANCE, BY SHEER FORCE, AND WHEN THEY HAD PASSED THROUGH, THEY LEFT HIS SUBSTANCE, THE CULTURE OF HIS LIFETIME, CRUSHED AND ANNIHILATED BEHIND THEM. IT BEGAN WITH ANGUISH, ANGUISH AND DESIRE, AND A FRIGHTENED CURIOSITY AS TO WHAT WAS COMING. IT WAS NIGHT, AND HIS SENSES WERE ON THE WATCH from far off a grumble an uproar was approaching a jumble of noises clanking blaring and dull thunder with shrill shouts and a definite whine in a long drawn-out u sound all this was sweetly ominously interspersed and dominated by the deep cooing of wickedly persistent flutes which charmed the bowels in a shamelessly penetrative manner but he knew one word it was veiled and yet would name what was approaching the foreign god vaporous fire began to glow then he recognized mountains like those about his summer-house and in the scattered light from high up in the woods among tree trunks and crumbling moss-grown rocks people beasts a throng a raging mob plunged twisting and whirling downwards and made the hills swarm with bodies flames tumult and a riotous round dance women tripped by overlong fur draperies which hung from their waists were holding up tambourines and beating on them their groaning heads flung back others swung sparking firebrands and bare daggers or wore hissing snakes about the middle of their bodies or shrieking held their breasts in their two hands men with horns on their foreheads shaggy-haired girded with hides Bent back their necks and raised their arms and thighs, clashed brass cymbals and beat furiously at kettle drums, while smooth boys prodded he goats with wreathed sticks, climbing on their horns and falling off with shouts when they bounded. And the bacchants wailed the word with the soft consonants and the drawn out U sound, at once sweet and savage, like nothing ever heard before. In one place, It rang out as though piped into the air by stags, and it was echoed in another by many voices in wild triumph. With it they incited one another to dance and to fling out their arms and legs, and it was never silent. But everything was pierced and dominated by the deep coaxing flute. He who was fighting against this experience, did it not coax him too with its shameless penetration into the feast and the excesses of the extreme sacrifice his repugnance his fear were keen he was honorably set on defending himself to the very last against the barbarian the foe to intellectual poise and dignity but the noise the howling multiplied by the resonant walls of the hills grew took the upper hand swelled to a fury of rapture odours oppressed the senses the pungent smell of the bucks the scent of moist bodies and a waft of stagnant water with another smell something familiar the smell of wounds and prevalent disease at the beating of the drum his heart fluttered his head was spinning he was caught in a frenzy in a blinding deafening lewdness and he yearned to join the ranks of the god the obscene symbol huge wooden was uncovered and raised up then they howled the magic word with more abandon foaming at the mouth they raged teased one another with ruddish gestures and caressing hands laughing and groaning they stuck the goads into one another's flesh and licked the blood from their limbs but the dreamer now was with them in them and he belonged to the foreign god. Yes, they were he himself, as they hurled themselves, biting and tearing upon the animals, got entangled in steaming rags, and fell in promiscuous unions on the torn moss in sacrifice to their god. And his soul tasted the unchastity and fury of decay. End of chapter 5, part 2